this was my first introduction to true injury to the human body. I had been knocked down. I'd been hurt. I'd been, you know, injured. I'd cracked ribs. I'd done stuff like that. You know, I could tough through all that stuff. This was the first time I ever experienced something that literally I, I lost control of my body. My body basically betrayed my brain. And I, it, it's funny to me, I thought it was the ending of my career and it ended up being the start of a completely different career where injury to the human body was going to become a very big focus in my life in regards to self-protection, because here I was the epitome of bigger, faster, stronger, and a small injury to my body completely, you know, took out all of those advantages that I had. And it's kind of become a lifelong passion since then that I've studied, you know, injury and I got involved with people that understood injury to the human body. And we basically found that this is kind of the Rosetta Stone to real self-protection. And it's available to everybody. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou, and boy, do we have an incredible, amazing guest lined up for you today. He is a true thought leader in his field. I've had the privilege of being in his course just two short weeks ago in Los Angeles, California. He is the author of the best-selling book, When Violence is the Answer. I'm speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Tim Larkin. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Nikki. It's an honor to have you on here, my friend. Tim, person listening to this show is someone who is either a thought leader or an aspiring thought leader. There's someone who is interested in having the world know who they are, what their gifts are. They want to get out there and make a difference in the world. And they're interested in learning from our guest, who in this case is you, how you did it, what your backstory is. So could you go ahead and share your backstory with us? Yeah. Um- I was a Navy kid and, uh, you know, my dad was an officer in the Navy and we moved around a lot and, uh, self-protection was something that was always kind of part of my, almost my DNA. You know, my grandfather was really big on making sure all of his grandchildren knew how to defend themselves. And so I, I remember one of the first gifts he ever gave me. Uh, as like a four-year-old kid was uh, Everlast boxing gloves. He was a huge boxing fan. Nice. And, uh, he used to teach us in the in the in the basement in uh, Boston, where my family's from originally. My cousins and I would learn, you know, the basics of boxing. Um, I think probably the first real self-protection lesson I got from him was uh, had nothing to do with with learning how to punch or anything like that. It was uh, basically he looked at us one day and he loved. You know, he, he, lo- he loved the sport of boxing and he would tell us 
he goes, you know, boys, he said, here, this in the ring, he was talking in the ring, he goes, this is how we fight. He goes, this is, this is, these are the rules we agree to, this is what we do, and you're always a good sportsman, and he's very clear about that. And then I remember, you know, imagine being down in a basement, and, and there's, a, there's a basement window, and if you've ever been in basements, especially in the East Coast, there's like these little little windows that'll, that'll look out into the street, and he'd point, he'd point to the window, and he said, but if anybody tries to attack you out there, he said, you know, you don't, you don't use rules. And it was really interesting. It was, you know, as a young kid, I mean, we were, like, we were probably like between four and eight years old during those times. We didn't really know what he was saying, but basically what he was trying to tell us was the difference between, you know, the idea of sport competition and then the reality of dealing with real violence in the real world. And he was very hands-on, you know, he, he was, uh, he was a really good boxer. He was a World War II vet. He had seen a lot of violence, you know, in his lifetime. Uh, but he wasn't a violent man. But he he was very big on making the fact that you, you needed to know, you know, how to protect yourself. So I had that inculcated in me as a young kid. Um, in the Navy, you know, being a Navy kid, I was going around uh, to all these different bases where we were living as my dad would go from, you know, assignment to assignment. We ended up in San Diego. And we ended up in Navy housing right across when I was about probably, I think I got there right after my 12th birthday. We were in Coronado, California, and the Navy housing there literally was across the street from the basic underwater demolition school, which was the SEAL, the, the SEAL school. Buds. And I, we had no idea what the SEALs were. You know, we were young kids, and my brother and I just saw this huge obstacle course with a barbed wire fence. And we figured, well, that's not much of a challenge. We can get over the fence. And we thought it was our own personal playground. And we quickly found out, you know, by the SEAL instructors that they kick us off repeatedly from jumping on the obstacles. But after a while, they let us watch. They let us watch training. So I learned about this group of guys that got paid to jump out of airplanes, shoot automatic weapons, you know, just basically be paid to have a great time, you know, just doing things that, you know, a 12-year-old boy would just think is amazing. And I decided right then and there, well, that's, that's what I want to do. And um, much my much my parents chagrin because back then the seals were not um, thought of in the way they they were here. They were really thought of as kind of a aberration in the navy and a career killer if you ever went there, um, which is really funny when you think about it now at where they have such prominence. So so I started preparing myself at a young age. I promised my father I would attend college, which I did, and I did that with a navy ROTC scholarship, but. I knew everything from my years of being in, in Navy housing and talking to the SEALs. I knew how to go through training. So I knew how to train correctly my body. I knew how to get through training. I knew, I knew all the secrets, you know, where to hide food, how to do things. So when I was, you know, a senior in college and I was applying, I was up against approximately 2,500 guys for two slots. There were only two slots available for the, the class coming up. And I was able to secure one of those two slots. Wow. And, um, and I was, you know, and I was really, it, it was almost like I had, I did have an unfair advantage because, you know, here at a 12, as a 12 year old kid, I, you know, was able to spend, you know, six, six years basically just learning all the ins and outs of SEAL training. And I had a lot of good friends that were SEALs and, you know, they just, they, they, they helped me out. So training for me was, was really I wouldn't say it's easy, but it was very doable. And I, I flew through it. I was a, 
the boat captain of my uh, squad and I took everybody through that. And I was able, my team was able to win all the major events. We won Hell Week. We won all the major events out at uh, the island where you're doing weapons and, and all of that. And, and things were looking great for me. Um, I was weeks away, literally a couple of weeks away from graduating. We had already, uh, I had already been positioned as the number one guy in the class. So I was going to win Honor Man. And the great thing about that was you're able to basically select which team you wanted to go to. And back then I was going to go to the SEAL Team 4 because they were doing all of the counter-narcotics work. If anybody's watched the show on, on Netflix, uh, Narcos, yep. um, SEAL Team 4 was the main special warfare group that, that was their area of command. So back then that was the big thing, you know, working the drug problem was a big deal. And, and I figured that would be a good start. And then of course I'd already told myself that I'll just spend a couple of years there. And then of course I'm going to go to the counter-terrorist team. I'm going to be, a, you know, in SEAL Team 6 and, you know, I had my whole career planned out. And uh, a couple of weeks before training, we had a dive. It was a no big deal dive. And um, here I am. I'm at the peak of my physical, you know, uh, just just preparedness. I, you know, talk about bigger, faster, stronger. That was me. Couldn't be put down. I, I was I was in, unstoppable as far as I was concerned. I had a, a little bit of congestion the day that we had to do this dive. Um, and it was a really easy dive. It was a dive that basically simulated uh, us blowing up obstacles that would be in the way of an amphibious landing. So it's a classic um, uh, UDT SEAL mission. And we were out there tying explosives to these uh, uh, underwater obstacles. And I had just enough uh, congestion to where my ears were really kind of hurting me. The pressure is that the pressure going down to, you know, equalize your ears was, was tough, but you know, I didn't want to miss that. I didn't want to have to make up the dive because if I had to make up the dive, I'd have to give up a Saturday to do that. And, you know, I had plans on Saturday. I was going on a date. I had all sorts of stuff, you know, I didn't have time for this. So I pushed it because I was arrogant and as I was down there, I felt more and more pressure, especially on my um, my left ear. And a wave, you know, you have waves on top of the water, but you also have waves below. And so a, a wall of water, you know, a wave of water, basically, as I'm tying these explosives onto this, uh, this obstacle, it's called a Jap scully. I remember cranking, I'm cranking on a piece of wood that's holding the uh, explosives down on the obstacle. And as I'm cranking, I get hit with this water, which if it happened to you, Nick, or anybody else that's listening right now, probably wouldn't have, you guys would feel it, but it was no big deal. It was like the straw that broke the camel's back. It was just enough pressure to burst my eardrum. And so it burst my eardrum. It, it sent cold water up in the middle of my, uh, my head, basically. I felt warm water running out of my head, which was my the fluids of my semicircular canal, and I went into vertigo. It was it was crazy. I'm I'm underwater. It's kind of twilight, and I I'm completely disoriented. You go, you know, I had no idea which way was up. The only thing that got me to the top of the surface where you know the instructors were was there was an anchor line that was hanging down from one of the boats, and I pulled myself up, you know, the uh, the rope. And as I'm pulling myself up, I felt like I was pulling myself 45 degrees down towards the bottom to the left side. I was so disoriented. And they said when my head hit the surface, it was slapping uncontrollably and, you know, bleeding from my ears. And they pulled me up and I could tell here I was the number one guy. Here I was, you know, the unstoppable. Here I was 
you know, completely an arrogant 21 year old. And literally in seconds, my life was turned upside down. I knew as soon as the instructor looked in my ear, he was a corpsman. Uh, so he's a medical corpsman and very, very accomplished guy. I could tell just by him looking inside my ear and his reaction that I was done. I, I knew my ear was, you know, just there's no way it was going to be able to repair. Now, today's technology, they could have done something. But back then, there was no way to repair my ears that I could ever do pressurized diving again. So this was my first introduction to true injury to the human body. I had been knocked down. I'd been hurt. I'd been, you know, injured. I'd cracked ribs. I'd done stuff like that. You know, I could tough through all that stuff. This was the first time I ever experienced something that literally I, I lost control of my body. My body basically betrayed my brain. And I, it, it's funny to me. I thought it was the ending of my career and it ended up being the start of a completely different career where injury to the human body was going to become a very big focus in my life in regards to self-protection, because here I was, the epitome of bigger, faster, stronger, and a small injury to my body completely, you know, took out all of those advantages that I had. And it's kind of become a lifelong passion since then that I've studied, you know, injury, and I got involved with people that understood injury to the human body. And we basically found that this is kind of the Rosetta Stone to real self-protection. And it's available to everybody. And, and it wouldn't have happened if I didn't get that own injury to me because I know my, my career path. I know what I would have done. And there's no way I ever would have gone down this road. And it, what was really interesting was I was assigned to a command. They kept me in the community. They kept me in as an intelligence officer. Um, but I was assigned to the, the admiral's command who controlled all of the SEAL teams. I had no business being there. But we were in an expansion mode in the SEAL teams back then, and they didn't want to give my slot to a, a healthy SEAL at the time, a guy that could operate and dive, because they had so few of them back then. You know, there was only about 1,200 guys active at, at that time. Um, and we were in this expansion mode where we went into special operations command. And so the army had all these operators and all these people that maybe had very few guys. So every guy that could operate was, was absolutely needed. And they saw using me and giving me a slot that was way above my pay grade as a way of getting somebody who understood the community. Cause I had a good reputation, you know, from my training and, and they liked me and they knew I could do the job. So they sent me to Intel school. I came back. The interesting part was being in the senior command, we had these guys that were these strategic thinkers and the Berlin Wall was coming, had come down and we knew the whole world was changing. You know, the old model of the Soviets versus the West was going away. These guys that I was with, they basically predicted what we're dealing with today, you know, 20 some odd years ago. And they knew they had to change their tactics. And one of the main things they realized was wow, we're going to be doing a lot more house to house, putting hands on people. And really, they hadn't trained effective hand to hand training since Vietnam. And they knew they had to start looking for that type of training to start preparing everybody for, you know, what was what they saw coming. So I, I was there and they started to put together a team. The reason they had me involved in it had nothing to do because I had zero experience, I had no combat experience. And I certainly didn't have any operational experience. 
but they liked me. So here I am, this, this, you know, 20, I think 22 at this time, kid, your old kid with these legends of the SEAL teams, these guys that were just the, the senior guys, they had done all the operations grenade. A lot of them were hit. were, were Vietnam era guys that were just amazing. You know, some of the things they had done and they liked me because I had a martial arts background. You know, like I told you, my grandfather taught me, you know, how to, how to box early on. I had multiple black belts growing up uh, that I got from the bases that I would stay at. You always had a Marine uh, group that was always training judo or they're training Taekwondo or something like that. And so every base I went to, I was doing some form of martial arts, but it was really interesting was it was an opportunity for me to see how these guys thought. And we got to, you know, have literally the world's best martial artists at the time come and train. And um, what we quickly found out was there were a lot of amazing practitioners, but most of them couldn't make their system or their art work synergistically with carrying weapons and the combat tools that the operators are, are required to carry. And so it was, it was interesting as we went through, we, we learned little things. And, and we personally, as a group, this, this, this group, we trained, in addition to the uh, classes that were given and that we would go to, we would also train on our own three to four times a week. And it was just amazing. It was this amazing time in my life that I was in, involved in this group. What was interesting was I ended up being the guy who ended up finding the instructor that did the original pilot course. And it was completely through networking that I did. The one thing I was always very good at was reaching other, reaching out to other people. In my capacity as an intelligence representative for the Admiral's Command, I had to network with all the other commands, all the other agencies. I had to have, you know, basically the ability to interact with everybody, to share intelligence and also to share tactics. And so I had good, good uh, relationships. And one day I get a call, I'm in San Diego and I get a call from one of my DEA buddies. And he thought it was hilarious that we were training hand-to-hand combat, which it's hard for anybody now that is into like the UFC and you see how prominent martial arts are right now in combat sports. Back then it, it really wasn't, didn't have that kind of preeminence. And it was also, it was kind of joked on in, in the combat world as far as, uh, you know, military and, and law enforcement. They saw training in hand-to-hand as a failure, meaning if you had to get down to hand-to-hand combat, that means you failed in your ability to use guns. You know, they, 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 everything was all about the gun and gunfighting. So he called me up and he said, hey, are you guys still doing that punchy-kicky stuff? And, you know, I, I said, yeah, and we're still doing it. You know, I, I called him a, I called him a, a choice name for what he said. And he said, well, listen, he goes, there's this guy. He goes, he's in Pacific Beach. He's a former Vietnam vet. He's got a small place. He just trained a group of our operators. He said he's a real, you know, he just basically said he's a real difficult person. He said, but I know you get along well with people like that. And um, he meant that as a compliment. You I have a talent. If I, you know, people ask all the time, what's your superpower? And I think probably my biggest superpower is the ability to, to connect with socially difficult people and get really great information. I found some of the best information when it comes to self-protection and training often comes from 
very socially difficult people. Uh, and what I mean by that is they usually are very dogmatic in their approach to things. They usually have a lot of really good empirical data for what they do, and they suffer fools you know, lightly. They, they just can't handle it. They, they can't handle anybody that doesn't get it right away. They just won't tolerate idiots. And you know, they're, they're hard to be around. But I have a talent for actually, you know, not only getting great information from those people, but actually, you know, establishing friendships with people like that. And it's really served me well. And this guy that the DEA guy was telling me about was that type of personality. He's a former Vietnam vet, hated the military, thought anybody that was in the military was a loser, basically, because he was drafted. He was drafted as one of McNamara's 100,000, uh, meaning, you know, kind of forced. He was from a lower social economic setup. And he couldn't understand anybody that would willingly stay in the military for life. But he was a tunnel rat. He was assigned to a, a, a group, the 173rd Charlie Company. And the, in the 68 to like 72, Westmoreland had them out in the jungle. These guys were out all the time. This guy was one of the tunnel guys, one of the tunnel rats. He literally would go down there with a 45 and a K-bar and, you know, clear out, you know, some of the Viet Cong tunnels and everything. He was a, a very very brutal, effective guy when it came to hand-to-hand combat. And he was a he, badass. Yeah, he was a badass, but he was, it's funny, you know, Nikki, all the guys that I've ever met that you truly could say are a badass, their personality isn't what the media or anybody else would think. These guys are usually really quiet, competent individuals, never go looking for it, but their ability to do violence and their ability to use violence is just, it's nothing short of impressive when they have to do it. And it's very sudden. And uh, this guy had a way of training that was really interesting. He's the first guy that I saw that he wasn't well-educated, but he truly understood trauma to the human body. He understood how to manipulate trauma. And he was a smaller guy. He was about five uh, seven, and probably he would anywhere from 145. I think the heaviest I ever saw him was about 157 pounds. But when he put his hands on you, didn't he? It felt like you know a two-ton truck was dropping on you. And uh, he just he could use body weight in his strikes. He was he was very very accomplished, but very you know. I wouldn't say he's humble. He definitely wasn't humble, but he was just a very quiet professional. I went and met him. And when I walked into the training that I saw them doing, I was shocked. It looked like a slow motion prison riot. I remember distinctly one of the first things I ever saw was I walked in and I saw a kid and he was in like a traditional like karate gi. But he came in, he hit the guy to the side of the neck, he comb grabbed his hair and out of nowhere came a training knife and he started stabbing this guy on the side of the neck. And then he was able to sweep him and drop him just all in one smooth move. I'd never seen anybody that could just translate from using their brain in their body to using a tool to then going back and just everything integrated perfectly. And these guys were just young, regular, you know, college age kids. There was, there was no, you know, and I had seen some of the best in the world at that time. And I had worked with some of the best, combat operators at that time, yet I never saw anybody that was this smooth. These college kids had far more usable knowledge and usable training than we were getting. We were getting very indirect methods on how to use violence. And I saw that this guy was solely focused 
on the areas of the human body that got you a big result when it came to trauma. And the reason they were studying that way was because that is something that universally all humans have in them. Like we all have these areas of the human body that are, you know, prone to trauma. And the best place to get that information is sports injury data. And the reason you want to look at sports injury data is because all those injuries occur from humans colliding with humans and humans colliding with the planet. And that's forces that you and I can replicate. And, and this guy, for being an, you know, a relatively uneducated individual, was absolutely brilliant when it came to conveying that information and showing you how to manipulate these things on the human body. The way I've, I've turned it now is I basically, I have new, like if I have new people, you know, I'm hoping that the result that you had, Nikki, is now you look at the human body differently, whereas probably before training, most people, before this type of approach, most people will look at somebody who's bigger, faster, stronger, and we'll focus on all the differences that we have with that person. We'll focus on the fact that, wow, he's taller than me. He's younger than me, much stronger than me, faster than me. The true alpha predator will look at any human being, a 12-year-old girl or a 275-pound you know, NFL uh, lineman, the same way. They'll, they'll look at the similarities of the human body. They'll sit there and say, okay, there's his throat, there's his knee, there's his ankle, there's the groin. They, they focus on all the similarities in the human body because they understand, I don't care who you are, nobody can take injury to these areas of the human body. And so it's... Again, to me, my own personal story of being injured and having that, having been humbled to that and luckily surviving it, it didn't you know, take me out, was really the turning point in my life. And I thought it was the, like I said, I, I really thought my life was over at that point. And it took me on this whole other path where I was able to actually get exactly what I was looking for. The whole reason I was joining the SEAL teams really was to learn this type of an approach, you know, uh, uh, of thinking. And I got it in the most indirect way and, and certainly not the way I had planned out. Tim, it, it's a remarkable story, your story. You know, what's most impressive about it is you had a debilitating injury. A lot of people faced with that would have crawled in a hole for a while and, and gone into woe is me. But you took the lemons that life gave you and made lemonade. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, they say this all the time. I think um, I really think it's true. And I try to pass it on to my kids that yep. it, it's really about sticking in, you know, just 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 staying in the game, not taking yourself out. Now, I know I couldn't play the game the same way after that injury. But, you know, I had to really I, it's hard for people to understand if you're not in the community. But the fact that I that I allowed myself to check my ego and come back to the community, not as an operator, but as an intelligence, um, you know, basically intelligence officer, analyst, you know, it's humbling, you know, because that's not the sexy part of being special operations. Now, there's some really cool things that I was able to do in intelligence. I made amazing connections and uh, the intelligence world is a whole other world. It's, it's amazing. But again, it's not the it's not the idea of, you know, what I thought. I, I, I really wanted to become a, a you know, a, a platoon leader. I had I had really good goals of what I wanted to achieve. And, and I was never allowed that path. But there was just something in me that said I needed to stay in this community. I needed to see it out there. There's there's something here for me. And um, it was humbling. I mean, because you get injured in a community like that. 
your friends, and rightfully so, I understand, but I, you know, I went from being the top dog to being a pariah. And the reason is there's, there's, you know, people don't want to be around you from the idea of it might, you know, there, there's this idea it might pass off, you know, yeah, my rub off. Sure. Yeah. My rub off. And so, so you go, you go from being, you know, the alpha to just this, this person that everybody kind of looks at says hi to, but you know, they really want nothing to do with you in that community. But, but yeah, it was probably one of the greatest lessons in my life was that, you know, you have to play the cards that are dealt you. And if you, if you really go all in and I did, I, I, I found it fascinating, you know, some of the subjects I got to, to, to study and I tried to do the best job I could and opportunities opened up that never, ever would have been available to me had I gone the traditional route. You know, I, I never would have met the senior people that I met. I never would have. It set me up for so many things later on. Some of the senior level people that I got to interact with at a very junior level. It, it's helped me literally to this day. I was just talking to a, a, a friend of mine who was a commander when I first met him. And he ended up being, you know, a, a three star admiral when, when he got out. And, you know, it, that Admiral it was, McRaven? Uh, no, it wasn't McRaven. It was. Uh, it was uh, Admiral Smith that came in. He was really good. I, kn- I knew McRaven. Uh, he he's just an amazing guy. Oh yeah, his speech and I, I bought the book that uh, the speech inspired. It's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, no, he he's an incredible. You find, you know, my father told me this when I when I entered the military, and, and it's true. He, he's told me. He goes, listen. He goes, you're going to find the top, you know, three to three three to five percent of people. You'll never meet people like that outside of the military. Their level of integrity and their level of dedication and service is just something in camaraderie is something that you'll never experience in the civilian world. And being a Navy brat, I, I didn't understand what he's talking about. I just thought everybody was like this. And I realized yeah, very everybody's quickly. not like this, Tim. No, <laughs> not no, even remotely, not even remotely. It's one of the no. things I admire about people with a military background is I mean, this is me going off on a rant, but men today in the 21st century are not like men 50 years ago, 100 years ago. You know, men from that era believed in things like keep your word, uh, live according to a code of conduct, be honorable. And today, that's those things just don't exist in society at large, but they do exist in the military in a very big way. They, they do. And, and um, it, it's interesting, you know, I, I look back, I look back to people, you know, my grandfather's era and, you know, depression, you know, we grew up through the depression, was just an amazing guy. And I, I often wonder sometimes when I see some of the things that, that we're, you know, that you're talking about that we're seeing in today's, today's world and what people are told to do, you know, to be a man, I, you know, he'd just be shaking his head and not in a uh, derogatory way, just in a, you know, I, I think what, what we're seeing is people not understanding how to be a man, how to, how to really, you know, I, when I look back at my, my grandfather's group, they were just men. They understood how to be men. They were good men, but they didn't try to be something that they weren't, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and they, they kept their word and, and, and they did that. And, and you, do, you find that in the military. And, uh, and I was very fortunate. The command I had, it was top loaded with individuals like that. And um, that's, that's what I said. It was just, it was just amazing. So here's some important things. To me, 
this is a, a good way for us to go back and forth in the conversation of your story and some of the principles of thought leadership. So I say there's five pillars of thought leadership, and this is usually the last one I talk about. But since you brought it up now, we'll make it the first one. And it's the importance of having the right peers and mentors in your life. Um, when you're a thought leader, if you want to stand out, if you want to, you know, get out of this sea of sameness, if you will, and you want to get off of this, this stagnant, low-income world, which so many people in our industry are in, and you want to experience growth, and you want to feel like, you know, what you have to say matters, and you matter, and that you're going to be able to make a difference in the world, you need great peers, and you need great mentors. And it sounds to me like you experienced that at a very young age. You were around incredible mentors. These were senior people in, in the community, uh, in the Navy and the SEALs. And in a way, even though you weren't around operators, you were around these senior people who acted almost as mentors and peers at the same time. So this elevated your thinking and elevated your ability to operate and win in the world in a way that it wouldn't have been possible if you hadn't been around these folks. Am I wrong? No, and that's just it. it uh, I was very fortunate. And, you know, the other thing I'd pass on to, you know, if you have some younger listeners with that, because I'm seeing, you know, I have a 23-year-old son. and and he's benefited a lot from my relationships with people. He's, he's got so many, you know, mentors available to him, but the reason they're available to him is because he learned at a very young age. I said, listen, I'm going to provide you a lot of different opportunities. As soon as I hear that you didn't show up on time, that you didn't listen, that it's done. I'm not going to, you're not going to embarrass me. And you know, the one thing that everybody says about my son is this kid is so coachable, so trainable yeah. and, you know, willing to do the work. And, and I think one thing that's kind of lost is this idea. And, and I think social media has a lot to do with it. But, you know, I put in years and years of apprenticeship work, basically, you know, uh, under under mentors. And it's the most valuable thing you can do. I'm, I'm so shocked by so many kids that don't take the opportunity you know, they're so concerned about if they don't think they're making enough money, they feel like they're somehow being, um, you know, being, uh, 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 what do they say, like disrespected or something, rather than seeing the opportunity that they have to learn under some people and and, and be able to check your ego and, and do that. I mean, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to have 10 years under my instructor and we did, you know, we did stuff all over the world. And. I was not the main guy. I didn't try to be the main guy. I just tried to support him as much as possible and learn as much as I could and become the best, you know, instructor that I could. And that to me, I, when I look back and I've had a lot of great things happen to me in my, you know, 30 years of being you know, professionally doing this all over the world. Probably my most fond memories are my mentorship years is the years where I was, I was being mentored. And, and where I really learned, I mean, yeah, it's great to have the accolades that I've had and the speaking engagements and the, and the press and, and all of those things. But it was really the, those times that really molded me. They were able, I was, the reason I was able to do the other things is because I, I put in that time of really just mastering the craft and, and learning how to communicate and really caring about how to, how to put the message together for people. That's brilliantly said. I have a mentor 
who's also a friend. And, and I've actually mentored him in some ways, but he's older than I am, but about 23 years. And um, he's a pretty brilliant guy. His name's Raymond Aaron. In fact, he was the very first person I interviewed for this podcast over two years ago. He talked to me about his plan for living a long life. And I want to just I want to just reveal these to you, Tim, and and to our listener because it's so powerful. He said there's there's four ways for you to die before your time, Tim. He said you either run out of money, you run out of friends and family, you run out of health, or you run out of future and a vision that compels you. So if you think about that, right? Like if you want to live a long life, you got to make sure you're successful and you've got money to take care of you. You got to make sure you've got friends and family. So you don't want to be the oldest person in your peer group. You need to constantly be making younger friends and mentoring them. And you need to take care of your health. And you need to always have a, a, a vision for your future. Isn't that pretty brilliant stuff? Yeah, that, that's, that is, that's the key. I mean, that, that's really it. And that's, that's that, that time that you put in is just is so valuable to you that where, where you're just figuring things out and you have somebody to course correct you. And hopefully you have the humility to listen. You know, I always, I, I was very fortunate. I think it's probably goes back to my grandfather too. I always saw my mentors and, you know, my, my older friends as an opportunity for me to learn from their experience and not have to, not have to redo. Now I've made plenty of my own mistakes. But what I really like is that I was able also to take advantage of a lot of, I guess you'd call them shortcuts or today's terminology hacks Hacks on, <laughs> on how to, how to, how to do things right the first time. And it, it was, it really came down to that. And I think the one thing that, that really hit me was the importance of relationships and the important, uh, the importance of developing the right relationships and, and also making sure it's a two way street. I see, I can't tell you the number of people that, that reach out to me and, hey, I want to do X, Y, or Z, and they have zero idea of what I do. They have an idea. They think I, they think they know what I do, but I can tell they, they haven't researched anything. They don't know anything about me. They're asking me questions that if they knew anything about me, they'd know that's not my approach to things. And it, it's just amazing to me how many people just will will do very little preparation or make it easy for you to mentor them. Absolutely. Well, heck, in preparing for this interview, man, I came and I did your course, so that was pretty good. <laughs> don't, oh, always, yeah. don't always get to do that with all my guests, but in this case, it was, it was really very valuable, very valuable. You know, Tim, I told you uh, when we first connected that one of the main reasons for me to come do your course was that... Uh, uh, one of my very good friends was shot to death here in Toronto uh, a little less than a year ago. And um, it, it just bugged me that, you know, somebody could just come, step up to him, pull out a gun and end him. And I, and I just thought to myself, you know what? I, I, I want to keep this kind of energy away from me. <laughs> so I don't want to be thinking about it all the time and attracting it to myself. But I also want to be prepared that if something like this were to ever happen to me, you know, I'd have a fighting chance. It wasn't going to be uh, a done deal that I, I was going to be at the losing end of that proposition, you know what I mean, or someone that I cared about. So having come to your course, you know, it was one of the things that you trained us in. And I came to see that, you, you know, 
if someone has a tool like a gun on me or, or, or on someone, it doesn't mean that they're going to win necessarily. You could, you could end them. You could yeah. end the threat to you at the very least, even if you don't end them. And that was powerful and empowering. And you've shown this to tens upon tens of thousands of people around the world. I mean, the great Tony Robbins says you are, in his opinion, the number one thought leader in the world when it comes to self-protection for the civilian world. Like, to me, that's mind-blowing what you've done for people. What has motivated you to want to make this kind of difference for the people of the world? I, I saw early on how quickly an act of violence can literally change your life in seconds, you know, and... I was always fascinated. I, you know, like I said, I was fortunate that I had a grandfather and uncles. And, you know, my father too. My, my dad was gone a lot. Obviously, you know, deployed a lot when I when I was young. So, you know, I didn't get as much from him early on as I did from my uncles and my uh, and my grandfather. Um, but this idea of, you know, it, it's it's expected of you as part of your you know, being a, a, a complete person that you learn how to physically defend yourself and protect yourself. Mm. And so I grew up with an idea early on that this was just normal. And, and that also I was taught very early on, the world isn't the way you want it. The world is the way it is. And you need to understand the difference. It would be nice if the world operated the way we'd like it to operate, but we have to be very aware of how it actually operates. Yep. And and if you can, what, what I, the, my greatest, I think the big turning point for me was originally when I learned this in the late 80s, late ladies, early 90s, I was in the military arena. I got out as a contractor to work with that original instructor. And we did a lot of stuff like free Blackwater type of work. And a lot of the, the work we did was in South America. And what really changed for me was I got to work with a corporate executive. His name was Lou Noto. He was the head of... Uh, mobile at the time, mobile oil. And, uh, I got to train him and his nice family. small company, right? Yeah, it was, it was really weird. It was really interesting. The companies we got to work with, we, we worked with a lot of oil companies because a lot of them were, were in parts of the world where they were putting in pipelines, uh, really rough parts of the world. Kidnapping was a big deal. And we were, we were training them how to, you know, how to, how to deal with that. And, and, you know, working with the executives, it, it was the first time that I, I started working with what you would see kind of like general population, uh, civilians. And I originally arrogantly thought that the training that we had was too, too severe, you know, like, like a civilian wouldn't be interested in it. It's just too much, you know, when you're dealing with the injury of the human body and straightforward, uh, learning how to break things on the human body to protect yourself. I figured most civilians wouldn't want to go that route. We quickly understood that people that travel in parts of the world, like these guys travel, it's exactly what they needed and exactly what they wanted. Yep. But the things that kept coming back to me when I started training people like that, you know, when I train a military group or a law enforcement group and they come back and they tell me, hey, Tim, this is great. We did X, Y and Z. And hey, we're able to use, you know, this principle that you taught us and blah, blah, blah. This worked. And listen, that's great. But quite honestly, Nikki, I expect those guys. That's what they signed up for. And that's what they do. When I hear something, the, the, the game changer for me was when I had trained a, a brother of one of these executives, and he was a surgeon. He was a, a neurosurgeon, and he was in, um, I, yeah, I think it's Cincinnati area. Um, 
but he was called in one night. He went through our course, you know, the same type of course that you went through. And he went to, he got called in late at night. An eight-year-old boy was having a hemorrhage and he was called in to, to perform an operation on his, on his brain. As he, and it was the inner city, city hospital. As he pulled into the uh, parking lot, you know, he's getting out of his car and he got attacked. He got attacked by two guys. And the first guy tried to stab him. He was able to strike him on the radial nerve. And then he was able to hit him inside the neck, knock him out. The other guy came off, you know, ran away. Security guards come out. They affect the arrest on that individual. This doctor goes in, performs the operation, comes back out. And after the operation, the first thing he does, and I'm going to date myself now, he actually wrote a letter. <laughs> you know, he actually grabbed a pen and actually, you know, wrote to us and, and thanked us saying, hey, there's no way I, I could have survived anything like that before. He said it was very clear what I had to do. The training came back to me. I, I haven't trained since the course. And I just wanted to let you know your principles are sound. That was key. And then another civilian came back to me and they said to me, you know, after the course, I stopped doing this type of behavior, which was really risky. And I, it's changed my life. You know, I, I don't, I, I understand how lucky I've been behaving overly aggressive in this manner. And it's really helped me to change my life. And I started realizing those, that feedback like that from real people, everyday people who really shouldn't experience violence, you know, shouldn't experience things. If, if I can, if I can give people principles and methods that cause them to change behavior and helps them to minimize the chance of violence ever coming in their life, that to me is way more rewarding than training, you know, some of the most elite groups that I've trained. And don't get me wrong, I love training those guys and it's fun to train guys like that. And, um, you know, you can really push things physically to the limit with individuals like that. But, you know, being able to help somebody navigate the world and minimize violence coming into their life, especially, I mean, think of that, that guy's a brain surgeon. He went and saved a kid's life and he almost didn't get to do it because these guys attacked him. You know, uh, it, it's just that, that to me, it just, it was kind of a, a change in my perception of, of where I wanted to go and really the course that I did in New York two days before 9-11 was the game changer for me where I switched from doing mostly military and law enforcement to 75%, you know, civilians after that because of, you know, what, what happened after 9-11. I, I did a course in the 8th and 9th of September 2001, wow. literally uh, a block away from um, the World Trade Center. Uh, I trained a bunch of guys who were were international bankers and traveled and and, and um, you know finance guys that worked out of the towers, and you know I was showing them things like oh look these are all the things that you actually can bring on a airline. I was showing them box cutters. I was showing just all these things that unfortunately you know two days later became very relevant, and it was after that. We taped it, as a, as a matter of fact. We actually had shot video for that because we were going to distribute it to all the guys that were in the course. And that's the only reason I really went into the civilian world because it was after that. I literally flew home on the 10th to Vegas. And obviously, I wake up the next morning. And where I was training was demolished immediately from, uh, from all the rubble and everything. It doesn't exist anymore. You know, it was one of the buildings that was destroyed. It was just surreal. You know, it's absolutely surreal that I, I literally was one day away from being in that area. 
and the effect that it had on people that, that we trained during that time, that was where things really started to change. And, and I got this, I got this desire to, you know, get away from the physical end of things as only meaning I was very much still into, and it was probably, it was probably, you know, if I really look back on it, I think it was to overcompensate for the fact that I got injured as a SEAL team you know, and wasn't able to be in the SEAL teams that I, as a cop, as an operator, as a, a contract operator, you know, doing contract work, I really pushed it. I tried to go to some of the most dangerous areas in the world, training teams, training people in there. And I really tried to push it. And probably part of that was to prove that hey, even though my ears, you know, didn't work, I was, I was trying to, to do that. And I really realized, I said, you know, where I can make the biggest difference in people's lives is training regular people. And, you know, just the feedback that you get and, and, and not even in what I, what I used to love, you know, as a young guy, I love the physical, I love training people how to, you know, break the body and do all this stuff and just, you know, show the coolest things that you can show and the most, you know, complex things and take it to the level of instructor and stuff. And I quickly realized, you know, for me, the rewarding portion is that person that comes back to me and says, Hey, I was on the subway the other day. I saw a guy do X, Y, or Z. I realized this could easily be a problem, and I got off at the next stop. You know, it was really inconvenient for me. And normally, I wouldn't do it because I knew I was going to be late to my next meeting. But I didn't even want to give myself the chance of being involved in this. And, and I hear that, and those, those are all my victories. You know, those are all the, you know, what I hang up on the, on the wall, basically, you know, when I get that kind of feedback from people. You know what, Tim, in, in the post-9-11 world where acts of uh, violence, acts of terrorism have, have become all too commonplace, to have someone like you give people belief and hope that they can be the hero of their own life, that they can act and act powerfully to save their own life for the life of someone they care about, or even teach them to stay away from uh, situations that could lead to violence when they have a choice to avoid it. That To me, that's nothing short of heroic. And, and uh, thank you for doing that for the world. Oh, yeah. Thank you for doing that, for helping spread uh, uh, empowerment to the free peoples. I, I feel really, you know, I'm, I'm just lucky every day. You know, your people were asking me at the course, oh, hey, you know, what course do you like to do the best? And and honestly, it's it's the course that you just went through. I love the initial foundation course where people come to me and, and you know you see people on that Saturday morning and then you see a completely different group when you let them go, you know, Sunday night. And you know, they've they've had to do physical work, they understand that, but the change is how they think. The change is how they look at the subject and they don't have the irrational fear, you know. Um the What's interesting is, you know, you had mentioned earlier, Nick, he's like, hey, I, I don't want to bring this to me. I want to keep this stuff as far away from me. And most people are there. The funny part is the path, the most direct path to that is to educate yourself on violence and to understand how to use the tool of violence. Because once you understand that, you can go back to that great life. You don't have to have that irrational fear. You absolutely understand what you have to be concerned about and what you don't have to be concerned about. And the cool thing that I get from most of uh, the people that train is they say, you know what, I'm more relaxed. I, I, you know, I realize the potentiality for violence, but I also realize what I'm in control of and what I'm not in control of. And that to me is, you know, just really valuable. 
super valuable, super valuable. So Tim, let's switch gears briefly to the pillars of thought leadership again. So we went through the fifth of five, which is the importance of mentors and peers. Let's go through the first four in bulletproof form, okay? So the first one is you gotta have world-class intellectual property. To be a thought leader, you need to do this funny little thing called thinking. <laughs> and you need yes. to have original thoughts that aren't just someone else's thoughts that you slapped your name on. They, they need to actually be building on the thoughts of others to be sure, but your own original thoughts. And that's what's gonna allow you to stand out. Otherwise, you'll be just like everybody else. Could you just comment on that? Yeah, you know, and I, I'm going to circle back to that idea of that, that mentorship time that I had, that, that apprenticeship that I had. It's, it's during those years that you need that time for your, your property, you know, your, your, your thought process to really gestate. It's going to go through a lot of different changes and you need to massage it and you need to really, really work it. And you, and you have to, you know, empirically, you know, get in front of a lot of people and just, just, you know, work your, work your, your program. And I've seen people, I've even seen people in my industry where, you know, it's funny terms that I've used for the last 20 years in the very recent past here have become somewhat acceptable. All of a sudden I see a lot of other people in the industry that I'm in, they're trying to use the term violence and they're trying to use a lot of the terminology that I use. But where people see through it is when you look at the actual application. And that's kind of what you were saying, meaning, you know, I could I could have a very cursory surface knowledge of something and use all the buzzwords and not have any depth to my knowledge. And I'll capture some people. I'll get some people to, you know, to come along. But they're not going to stick around because they're going to realize that the pond's too shallow. And I think that I think a lot of that comes from people not wanting to put the work in and, and, you know, very few people go into the world and say, yeah, I want to do self-protection as my, you know, as my career on it, because it's not, you know, it's not your norm. It's, I mean, I have a very abnormal career when it comes to my mother, my mother's still waiting for me to get a real job, but I loved it. And, and you know, I had to endure a lot of friends. You know, I have a, I have an international business degree from USC. I did a year at the, the University of London, I did time at the London School of Economics. I was geared to go to the finance world. I had buddies that after my military career, six months, I was gonna take six months off and then I was gonna go to Wall Street. Um, I just, there was just something pulling me back and I, I got an opportunity to work with that instructor that I told you about. He, you know, he had some corporate um, inquiries and didn't know how to handle them because again, he wasn't formally educated, asked me to help out for a couple of months. So I figured I'd help him out for a couple of months and couple of months turned into 12 years. And it was the most amazing ride ever meeting, meeting people that I never would have met. But if I, if I solely went off the idea of trying to do things merely for what seemed the most lucrative at the time, even though I didn't really have a desire or passion today, I got to be careful with passion because passion's not necessarily the way to go. But there wasn't a drive for me to do that. So the only reason I would have gone to Wall Street and done that was purely for financial reasons. Um, and here I just had such a, 
I couldn't explain it. You know, people thought I was crazy because I mean, my friends were making insane money at the time. But what's really interesting is when we fast forward through the 20 years, the majority of those guys blew up because of, you know, all the, the ups and downs that we've had in the financial markets and the various um, corrections that we've had. A lot of those guys, you know, got hit pretty hard and, and the world's changed. Whereas I've had this career, I wouldn't change anything that I've, that I've done, you know, um, but the reason you get that world-class content is because that has to be the thing driving you. You know, it has to be, you have to really want to help people and, and you have to really want to put out good information. And the reason it's so important to me with what I do is because I'm the first one to realize that I am not going to be there for my clients when they need this information. You know, they're going to have to take the information I give them and they're going to have to be able to apply it on their own. And that's why I'm so adamant about making sure that people own the principles, they own the information, that they don't try to be like an instructor. They, they actually, they're going to have to understand this and, and apply this in their self. So I, I try to make sure that my instructors and myself are always very client focused rather than guru focused. And um, I, I just find it very, you can get away with it in other areas where it's not life or death, but with our stuff, we're not selling widgets. And the last thing I want anybody to come out of a training with is talking about how great myself and the instructors were as far as, you know, us being able to do it. What's important is what I'd like somebody to come away with is saying, I can't believe what, what I know from where, where I started and what I walked away with and what I've changed. And that's, that's how we try to, to, to focus all the training because it's going to be a very personal thing. Should God forbid anybody have to use this information. And I want to make sure that they are given the information in the most effective manner. And you know, the, the thing that we strive with myself and all of my instructors strive with is we don't, we don't carry any legacy. If we find a better method, our, our principles are rock solid. The principles of self-protection that we train will never change. They're rock solid. But if we can find a better method, we're constantly improving methods. You know, I tell the clients this all the time, and I hope they, I hope they understand what I'm saying. I wish I learned the information the way my clients are currently learning the information. I would have been so much further ahead if I had the methods that we use now versus the methods that I had to, to learn with. And to me, that's the most exciting part. When I have an instructor that comes up to me and he says, hey, Tim, I trained these guys last week. I tweaked this. I couldn't believe how much more, you know, they were able to access the material after this. I go, great. We're going to try this on the next one. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what we did in, in your class, Nikki. We, we had people work very early on and you guys didn't know what we were doing, but we had you guys work in groups of three early on. Now that's something that we normally don't do. We do it for one module second day, but we wanted you guys to start with the idea of getting used to seeing another body right out of the idea, the idea of, of training people to deal with multiple attackers. That was because of an experience that we had in another seminar where we just tried it. And, you know, we that said, why not? That's powerful. You know? I, I really, I got a lot out of that. There's no question. So world-class IP is something you believe in in a big way. So the next thing we, we say is a pillar of thought leadership is clarity. You need to have a clear message, which you clearly do. And you need to have a clear understanding of who your ideal customer is. And you, you need to do what you said earlier on in your answer, which is that it's important to put the client at the center of the experience and not the guru and not the instructor. So I believe that's been a big part of your success, Tim. Agreed? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Listen, my industry is full of people 
that are chest thumpers. And a lot of these are great guys. Don't get me wrong. Really, really good guys. But, you know, I learned early on, I guess, I guess it was the way I was trained in SEAL training. You know, I had guys yelling and screaming at us during all the things that weren't important. But during weapons and explosives or diving or anything that was really, really where you could really not only hurt yourself, but possibly kill other people if you screwed up. The instruction was so clear, so focused on us getting it right. Now, they still found, it was a training command, so they still found ways to, you know, make training really challenging and tough for you. <laughs> but when you got the actual instruction part on the, the more lethal the instruction, the more clear the instruction and the more calm the instruction was. It was, it was, it was inculcated in us in a calm manner because they wanted it to be there for us, you know, when we really needed it. And, and that was just the, the best way. And I learned a lot from that process. And, and same thing with what, you know, we try to do with our training when I have people is I want this to be installed in the right area of the human brain. And it, it goes to what you say. It's, it's, you know, it has to be focused on the, on, on the client himself and, and everybody's different. Like, their bodies are all different. You know, their, their human machine is going to be different. Therefore I have to give them, you know, principles that they can grasp. And then I have to give them abilities to make their own decisions on how to protect themselves and what to use on their bodies and, and stuff. And, and it's, it's just, it's great when you can do that for people. That's amazing. So the third pillar of thought leadership is a strategy of preeminence. That is that you need to seek to be the best or at least one of the best in your field. If you don't do that, you're going to be just like everybody else. There's going to be an element of, yeah, me too. I can do it too. Yes, yes, yes. Versus, hey, I've got something unique to offer the world. What are your thoughts on the strategy of preeminence and the importance of that to standing out as a thought leader? You have to have a thick skin. You know, if you're going to put yourself out there, you, especially in this day and age, I mean, it's, it's crazy now. You, you have to realize that you, you're going to find your group and there's going to be a, there's going to be a lot of vocal people who may disagree with you because they haven't fully understood what you were saying, or they're just making a snap judgment, or quite frankly, they think you're challenging, you know, closely held beliefs that they have that they're not comfortable exploring. And I think I see that as being the biggest detriment to most people, no matter what their field is, people are afraid of criticism. And they're afraid of being criticized. And you have to get over that. You know, um, I have years of empirical data. I've, ten, I've trained tens of thousands of people. A lot of times guys that have, you know, have, you know, criticized me over the years and stuff. I look at their backgrounds and I realize they, they haven't, they haven't dug as deep as I have. And they haven't, they haven't really gone out there. I mean, I, I literally have put the time in, trained the bodies. So I'm very confident when I say, and I'm also very confident in letting people make their comments and not getting involved in, in that kind of stuff. But I see the biggest detriment to a lot of people. And I've seen some wildly talented guys, even amongst my instructor pool. And like, there are a couple of guys that are instructors that I think should be much better known in the industry, but they're very uncomfortable putting themselves out there. They don't want to deal with the criticism or they don't want to deal with, you know, the, if you have a strong opinion and, you know, I, I mean, look at the name of my book, you know, when violence is the answer, you know, people can take that as a soundbite and just extrapolate all sorts of things. I was kicked out of, you know, I'm still, I'm, I'm banned from travel to the UK because 
of my stance on pro victims, you know, right on, on self-protection, I, you know, a, a country that I had a 25 year history with and training never as much as a, a, uh, a traffic ticket. And I'm not allowed to travel there anymore because they found that they thought that, that my, my stance of saying people should be able to protect themselves in uh, that the UK needed to look at their self-defense laws, which were are, are pretty much antiquated for, you know, they were written for another time and not really relevant of, of today's situations, that uh, they found me more dangerous than a lot of the people that they've led into. Yeah, the UK's got some serious problems with uh, their priorities when it comes to who's dangerous and who isn't. Uh, yeah. It, it, and, and it's a joke. It's a joke. It's like the emperor has no clothes, you know? You know that yeah. story, right? The, these okay. these folks are pretending the emperor's wearing clothes when the emperor is clearly naked. Well, and, and not only that, and, and the majority of people talking about these situations are people that have extreme self-protection situations, meaning they use, most of them have security teams. Most of them, you know... I tell the rest of the world, you you need to operate this way and just, you know, let the police handle everything. Yet they, you know, their own lives aren't like that. It's very interesting, you know, when you look at it, but you have to be okay with that. I mean, I took a lot of heat for that and I was able to, you know, weather it, but, you know, I, w- I wouldn't change a thing that I, I did, you know, in that situation. And um, Good for you. it was... It was shocking, but but like, I think that's the biggest detriment to people is the fact that you have to not only you know put together some really you know good in depth training with with principle based approach, but then you also have to you have to have the fortitude to be okay that not everybody's going to agree with you and that you need to find your people and your people will more than take care of any of the crit, you know, you know, the critics, it'll be so rewarding with the people that you do reach that you don't have to worry about the critics. It's interesting that you say that, but one of the things that we teach our clients is that good marketing repels as much as it attracts. You need, you need to have your people, your tribe, if you want to use Seth Godin's wonderful phrase, and you need to, you need to know who isn't your tribe, who is going to be against you. I mean, the most successful uh, people in the world when it comes to thought leadership and opinions and so forth tend to be some of the most controversial. I mean, look at Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh oh, yeah. is hated as much as he's adored, but he, he, he's hated to the tune of $450 million a year. Right. You know, uh, and, uh, that's incredible. And people need to understand that if you're in business, if you're a thought leader and if you're out there, not that you're trying to deliberately offend anybody, that's not the game, but there's going to be people that are going to take issue with your views and with what you have to share with the world. So it's, that's, that's very powerfully said, Tim. So let's move on to the final pillar of thought leadership, and that's leverage. And leverage is how I've helped so many clients and my team has helped so many clients. We've taken people that uh, have been new to the game uh, and are making less than $20,000 a year and turn them into million-dollar-a-year earners by helping them take advantage of the principle of leverage. So by leverage, I mean that you don't deliver your message in just one way or two ways, but you are a full-spectrum repackager and deliverer of your message. So in addition to workshops and speeches and and books, you also do corporate trainings and groups and high-level mentoring and, and that sort of thing. Matt Church, who's been one of my mentors, 
mentors, says that there are six ways that a thought leader can deliver his or her message to the marketplace. So first of all, my question to you is, do you feel you're using leverage enough inside your business and your practice? And secondly, do you, do you agree with this philosophy of leverage? I absolutely agree with it. And, you know, I'm fortunate that, that one of my, um, one of my clients is Tony Robbins and it's a hard client to have. I'm sure <laughs> he, he told me, he, he, he gave me some really good advice, which I, you know, which I've implemented in the last you know year here. Uh, you know, he told me about a time in his life where he spent so much time traveling and going around and letting another team, you know, basically build the business that he walked home to a year where he, he killed it, did great. And he found out that he was upside down $10 million. You know, he had people, you know, he wasn't paying attention to the business end of things. He was paying, he was, he was paying attention to the, the delivery of the information and, and doing what he did, but he wasn't paying attention to the people that were supposed to be doing what you're talking about, leveraging for him. And they actually, you know, ended up stealing from him. And I realized, you know, in my business, it can get very ego gratifying. I get invited to some really amazing events and some amazing people. And I literally could be traveling, you know, probably 300 days out of the year if I wanted to. But I quickly realized that's not leveraging my message. That's not reaching. You know, I quickly realized there's no way, I, you know, people like yourself, Nikki, that actually came to my training, you guys represent such a small percentage of the people that I reach. And I can't assume that I'm, I'm, I'm never going to be able to, to, to train everybody that I'd like to be able to train or that want to train with me. Therefore, you know, how can I create, and, and the, with the advent of, of some of the technology that's available now, leveraging has never been more doable, you know, uh, and, and doable really at a, at a cost level. Um, you know, there's some, there's still some challenges, but, but all in all, back to when I started to what you can do now and how you can get your message out. It, it's huge, but it has to be a disciplined approach. And that's, that's really currently what I'm doing. I'm, I'm looking at this situation saying, okay, I've got tons of content. The content's not a problem. I got great content. I can package it, you know, the, the correct way. Now I, what I need to do is, okay, where are the markets that I'm not addressing? You know, I'm, I'm finding out that the Spanish market is huge for what I do that Brazil really has a, a strong need. And, and all it takes is just me, you know, making the effort to get my stuff, you know, translated and, and get it to these people. And you have to slow down. You have to slow down. You have to sit there and really look for the big picture. And I, it, it's hard because you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to stop doing what you've been doing. And that's hard for a lot of people. A lot of people don't want to get off the, the hamster wheel. I'm right in the, in the middle of making sure that I'm building a much more long-term leveraged delivery system. Well said, man. Well said. I love it. So, Tim, normally we end off each one of our episodes by asking our expert for their top three expert action steps. But I got to tell you, this interview has been full of expert action steps. So let's just go right on ahead and talk about your book, When Violence is the Answer. That's how I got introduced to you. I read this book. And I got to tell you, if you're listening to this episode and you have had someone you care about or even yourself be a victim of violence, you need to buy this book. 
you know, and you need to not only buy a copy for yourself, you need to buy like 10, maybe 20 for all your friends, all your family, all the people you love and adore and care about the most and get it in their hands. And, and there's a website for the book. I think it's whenviolenceistheanswer.com. Isn't that right, Tim? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It, talk That's about great, it for a minute. Well, it, the real reason I, I listen, you can get the you can go get the book at Barnes and Noble, you can get it at Amazon, you can get everything. But if you go to my site, and it's, they're going to allow me to do it in future uh, runs of the book, but right now the book doesn't have any contact information in it. What I did was I created a you know we had over two thousand and you know I think it was twenty three hundred and fifteen pages of information that I had to, I had to squeeze it down to a couple hundred pages. So there's a lot of information that I could go more in depth on. And I realized that this is a difficult subject to get out there. So I wanted to give a thank you to everybody that, that did it. So what I did was I created, um, for each chapter, there's 10 chapters. So I created 10 additional videos that go in depth with each chapter and give a breakdown of the book. But the only place you can get that is if you go to when violence is the answer, there's an Amazon thing that you can click on, you can buy it on Amazon. But more importantly, you'll be able to access and get these 10 modules that, you know, are, are free and it's really well produced. And, you know, I, I got uh, so far, we've got, I think I just passed 8,500 people that have been able to access this. Now I've had a lot more people buy the book, but unfortunately there's no way to get to them and say, Hey, you know, I got this additional material for you. So I'd really like any of your folks, if they're good enough to help me out, because you know, they've kept me off of the New York Times list on this, even though I'm out selling a lot of the people that are on the New York Times and, and mainly because of the topic. You know, the topic of violence is really tough for a lot of people to deal with. There, we're in this we're in this world where people are afraid to make people feel bad. And somehow they think this topic, even though the exact opposite, meaning the more you learn about violence, the more a sane socialized person learns about violence, the more peaceful your life is. You know, it really helps. So what I want to do is a big thank you to anybody is, listen, I'm going to give you all this additional material on top of it for the, you know, the purchase that you're going to get with the book for free. So if anybody's good enough and wants to help out and, and spread the message, I want to give back and make sure that you get not only the book, but a lot of other great material to go along with it. Yeah. And, and I want to say one more thing. I, I, I did your training, Tim, Target Focus Training. And if you're listening to this and you want to learn at the hands and feet of a true global icon in the self-protection space. Tim Larkin's program is world-class. And, and I got to tell you, I don't have a lot of conceits, but one of them is I know a good thought leader when I run into one. And Tim is the best. This is a course that's worth doing. It's worth flying to whatever city he's holding it in. By the time this podcast comes out, uh, I don't know that you've got your schedule put that far out because this podcast isn't going to come out for a couple months yet. But I'll tell you, go to targetfocustraining.com, uh, sign up for Tim's course. And uh, I'm actually in conversation with you, Tim, uh, about having you come to my uh, hometown, Toronto, and, and do a course here. So if you're in uh, living in the big smoke over here and you're interested, uh, reach out to us and we'll uh, we'll make this course happen for you. We're doing this because we're big fans of Tim. We don't have any sort of affiliate relationship with him. All of the success and the profits from uh, these programs will go directly to Tim. We just believe in your work so much, Tim. I want to get the word out there. More and more people should do it. So thank you. And listener, if you're listening to this and you're wondering, do I have what it takes 
to matter out there? Is my expertise worth something? Is this something that that I could do? Could I be like Tim? Could I raise my income from its current level? Could I get out of the stall, the stagnation in my business? Could I get to that happy ending? And the answer is yes, absolutely you can. And what we want to do to help you get there is jump on a call with you to really delve into what your intellectual property is and what it could potentially do that would make a difference in the world and, and create value in the world. And we do this in, in something called a trial breakthrough results call. And it's a trial call. There's no cost for it. The way to get this is to go to our show notes, which is ecircleacademy.com forward slash appointment. And, and you can get on the phone with myself or a member of my team. And also, if you want to get Tim's material, it'll be in the show notes, the website, you know, uh, whenviolenceistheanswer.com or targetfocustraining.com. They're going to be in the show notes as well. Make sure that you go visit them. You take advantage of buying a lot of copies of the book for yourself and the people you love, and you make sure that you jump in and do Tim's course. And uh, Tim, it's it's been a real honor having you on the show, man. Thanks so much. I really appreciate being able to get out to your people with this. No, Tim, thank you for doing this for me and and for my listener and, and, and for the world. God bless you, brother. God bless you. And that wraps up another fabulous, exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible, awesome, inspiring guest, the great Tim Larkin, go to the Thought Leader Revolution. Go to the show notes, check out all the information there about Tim, about his book, about his program. And if you're interested in jumping on a call, if you're interested in finding out if what you have matters out in the world and how you can make it matter, jump on a call with myself or a member of my team. That's all in the show notes as well. Until next time, goodbye.